If you're enjoying the show so far, please consider helping by supporting our show. Although never expected, any support for our show enables us to keep bringing the audiobook club to your ears. Hello and welcome to the Audiobook Club. This week we're so lucky to be joined by the author of Narrator, as well as the Great Lakes Saga and the Sunrise Side Private Mysteries, Landon Beach. Landon, thank you so much for joining me on the show. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful, John. Uh, I'm I'm humbled uh, that you gave Narrator a listen and that you would be kind enough to invite me on your show to talk about it. So doing well, sir. Glad to be here. (laughs) Very nice to hear it. Thank you so much for joining. It's a true pleasure to have you. Now, as is tradition on the show, um, I'd really love to start with a little about your background. Um, Could you perhaps tell us, you know, how and when you began your author journey and and discovered writing as, as a passion and pursuit? Sure. Well, my father is a high school art teacher, and I've always been exposed to um, the arts and writing uh, and been uh, a big fan of all different mediums of artistic and creative expression uh, since I was young enough to remember. And so I have always written things, and I decided one day that I wanted to try my hand at it uh, just to see uh, if I could do it, first of all, to write a full novel and to see if anyone would enjoy my storytelling and writing. And so I did that and at first um, came up against a bunch of hurdles, as I think every author does who's trying to sell their work creatively. Anytime you have art and money mixed together, especially in the same (laughs) sentence, uh, it it is an odd combination for sure. Um, But what I was getting back from feedback from agents and editors was that they liked my writing, but they didn't think that they could sell my work. And it was really frustrating to hear that. And so I continued to write and work hard, um, you know, butt in the seat, going at it, not giving up. Uh, And I think little did I know and little did I think people that are involved in publishing at all levels, especially traditional publishing, realized that the whole landscape of publishing and books was going to change with Amazon and being able to self-publish your work and get it out um, to more people than what you used to be able to do, which was, of course, publish a book and maybe get a few copies made because they were so expensive and go to a local bookstore, but no one on a wide scale, certainly not enough to make it any kind of a career. And so one point my wife um, looked at uh, one of my books and I said, I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this one. And finally she gave me an ultimatum and said, well, if you're not going to put this out on Amazon, because she says, you may not know it, but the whole publishing world is changing. And she says, I'm going to put it out out there behind your back. (laughs) And I I said, okay, we'll we'll give it a try. And so I put out my first novel, The Wreck. And I also was curious, I think like every author is not so much from a validation standpoint, you know, when you've put in, you know, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, you know, you're 10,000 hours, you've done the work and there's always room to learn, but there's a certain level of time and commitment that you've put in that um, 
I also wanted to test the waters and just see, you know, is this commercially feasible? Um, I want to take what the agents had told me years ago. Uh, is there any kind of basis in that they don't think that they can sell it? Uh, I knew that there was not a lot of fiction being written about Michigan or the Great Lakes at all. And I don't know, I, I don't want to say I took offense with it, but that was my home state and a yeah. particular region of the world that I knew really well and loved and thought it was a fantastic place to set adventures in. And so I entered it in the Clive Cussler Adventure Writers Competition, and I became a semifinalist, and that was an internationally recognized writers competition. And so I said, okay, I said to my wife, you might be onto something here. We'll give this a shot. Um, and then I wrote a second book uh, called The Sale, and I entered it in the competition again, and I made the top three. And so I was a finalist, and we flew out to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I got to meet Dirk Custler, of course, the son of Clive Custler, who is now, you know, taken over the business. Clive, you know, rest in peace, just a wonderful author and, you know, kind of the grandmaster of adventure. And then I wrote a book called The Cabin, and I was setting them on different Great Lakes. And at that point, um, I thought that I had built my resume up to a point where I could expand my business and look at audiobooks. And I'll stop there uh, for what you <laughs> want to say, you know, next. But that is where I, I came to know and reach out to Scott Brick. Oh, fantastic. That is really fascinating. I have lots of questions uh, to ask you going on. But as you so rightly prompted, narrator written by none other than yourself, narrated by the astounding Scott Brick. Um, for those who may haven't had a chance to read or listen to this book yet, could you tell us a little bit about what we may find uh, in this book? Sure. So in terms of the hook for a narrator to listen to it um, from a pure escapist kind of mentality of you're listening to an audiobook and have Scott take you away for a few hours. Um, there's a main character named Sean Frost, who was a performing arts prodigy, and he was a playwright and actor who won two Tony Awards in his 20s and was at the apex of the theater world in New York City. Um, but he had his flaws. And let's just safe to say something horribly, you know, goes wrong in his life. <laughs> and he, it necessitates a move across country to Carmel by the Sea over in California. And he reinvents himself as an audiobook narrator. And he's at peace with his love and his art and his relationships and the booming industry that audiobooks are. And he starts to rise in the ranks and notoriety. And, you know, as his skills progress, so do his flaws. And then one day, maybe he is kidnapped by two obsessed fans that want to make him read their book that they have written. And uh, I will leave it at that, sir. Well, I don't know. I If that doesn't hook people in, I don't know what will. So I was, um, to get right into it, um, and don't worry, I haven't got any spoilers in there because I really do want to um, make sure that people go out and check it out if they haven't. Um, but I was utterly, utterly blown away by the level of detail, especially technical detail about the audiobook production process. 
would you tell us about the research for this book? Like, how did you go about delving into this world? And did you know much about the audiobook production process before? Well, thank you for that, John. A, a professional as yourself in the industry to hear that just makes me feel really good and that, you know, my research was validated because other than entertaining, this was a labor of love and it is my love letter to storytelling. Um, and I picked this medium uh, to express that. Uh, in terms of the research, you're absolutely right. One thing that I wanted to do was to get it right. And so that um, people both inside the industry and outside of the industry would get a kick out of it. And there are a lot of winks and nods and you know Easter eggs throughout the book that uh, I think insiders would particularly enjoy. But again, since Scott, uh, who has become just a wonderful friend, he's a wonderful guy and just an incredible performer, because I had so much respect for him and his career and what he's been able to do, I wanted to make sure that I was ready before I approached him and I had done my research so that he would know that the industry itself and the people that are in it um, who have just blown me away with their generosity and their kindness um, in receiving the book and talking to me uh, about it and, and the process and that they're being entertained uh, as well. I wanted to have that done before I talked to him. And so it was probably a 12 or 18 month process somewhere oh, in between yeah. there. And I say 12 to 18 months because I have two young children. So it was, you know, uh, you know, a couple hours here, a couple hours there, some sleepless nights here, times at the <laughs> library there, up in the morning, having way too much coffee. <laughs> We're at points where I'm shaking, you know, typing on the, <laughs> the computer. But I watched interviews. And I know one of your you know, previous guests, uh, Sean Pratt, was on here. And yeah. I tell you what, you know, listening to him speak about the audiobook world, it's like you're getting a, a doctoral dissertation, a PhD in audiobooks. Um, and there yeah. are many professionals like Sean, but, you know, he's so brilliant uh, in how he approaches it and talks about the process. But there were endless videos. And of course, Scott is not only... Uh, a wonderful audiobook narrator. He's a master teacher as yeah. well. I think he had the first ever accredited audiobook course at UCLA in 2015. And so he kicked that off. And now he teaches students every year that want to go into the business who are performers. And so I basically devoured everything. I've got, you know, my hand still hurts from the pages and pages of handwritten notes. I'm really old school in that way in yeah. how I process things before I start to think about plot and character and development. And so, yes, I basically knew nothing, which is I think what most authors know about it. And uh, I did not have the respect um, for what it takes to get an audiobook from the manuscript when it reaches a narrator to the finished product when the consumer is actually listening to and enjoying the book, whether it's you know, in their home or on a walk or gardening, you know, this whole yeah. multitasking while you enjoy content uh, has just kind of changed the world in, in that respect. Yeah. So that was how I went about the research. And so that when I put the book together, then it was a challenge of finding interesting ways to put that material in there and not feel like you were clicking through a Wikipedia page on audiobook narrating. Yeah. You, know, you had to dramatize it. And that takes forever. It, it's really easy to do 
poorly, <laughs> which is, oh, well, I'll just put a paragraph in here about, you know, how you record and what the equipment is, but to make it live inside of a book, a novel, um, and keep the pace up, that's a huge challenge. I, I laugh about it myself, you know, with writing. It's hard to, <laughs> being locked in this room for 12 hours writing, you know, it's hard to make that seem exciting. <laughs> but when I finally found the idea um, for how I would do that uh, with an entertainment comeback story with narrator, then I felt really excited about the possibilities. Yeah, I bet. So with the book being, uh, you know, first person, uh, beautifully performed by Scott, it throws you right into that mind. And, and when writing first person prose, do, do you find yourself getting into the head of that character, thinking as that character would? Could you tell us a little about your process? You know, because you write such believable and relatable character traits. And, and I, for one, was just just so sucked in and found myself just, you know, just the tiny nuances of uh, of Sean's you know, being that I really resonated with. And, and it was, it was, yeah, a real pleasure. Could you tell us a little about your process and how you get into that mind? Sure. So this is the first book that I have ever written in first person. I usually write third person omniscient or third person close, but I thought for this one, it had to have that level of intimacy and also a first person account allows you to play with reliable and unreliable narration and different viewpoints, especially if you're living inside the head of one character. Yeah. And so for this one, uh, I'm a big fan of Robert McKee's books. And I had studied his book, Story, and his book, Dialogue, which were wonderful resources. And the same place that, you know, Sean Pratt is kind of, you know, the doctoral genius of audiobook narrating and coaching and talking about yeah. that process. Um, McKee is sort of like that for writing. His books can overwhelm you with so much detail and so many things to think about that you might come, you know, be frozen <laughs> after reading his work. So you got to take it in chunks, I've learned. Well, right around the time I was thinking about writing narrator uh he came out with a book called character and it was fascinating and again i read it devoured it became overwhelmed but what it did was it pushed me to do more work on sean frost to know him so well before i ever started a scene than i ever have for any other book that I've written because it had to be believable. Someone was asking me, what was your biggest fear uh, in taking on this challenge of writing this book? And it was that at some point someone would say, well, Sean Frost would never say that. Sean Frost mm -hmm. would never think that. And it takes them out of the experience. And then it was a whole new challenge to make it first person present tense, mm -hmm. almost like a screenplay. Yeah. And because I wanted that immediacy to think this is happening right now. Sean is telling us what's going on. And that is a place that I really love Scott's narration because he can get you so inside someone's mind that pretty soon, you know, if you identify with that main character, you think you're having those thoughts <laughs> and you're like, Oh, wait a minute, this is Sean. <laughs> or at least you think, Oh my gosh, I, I'm worried about this guy. He he needs his work and his people, yeah. <laughs> please. Yeah, so th that was the process. So that took months to to get his voice. And, and then there are always organic surprises when you're writing where you're typing and you're into the 
character so much that all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, Sean is telling me something new here. And those are always fun and wonderful surprises because you you can't be like a robot and script everything. So yeah. at some point I had to say, well, Sean, are, are you ready to get up you know, off the chair and, and walk and then run? <laughs> and, and then you go for it. That's so interesting. I was, I was, I was going to ask you, I, I think you may have answered a, a, a part of that just there, but there are so many twists and turns and new pieces of information revealed that keep us hooked. So are you a writer who starts with like a, a sort of a, a big outline and plots everything from the get-go? So the way that I work is different depending on the genre. But one thing I would say that I keep consistent is that I always think about characters and wants and needs and what is going to take them through an arc and a moving journey. Mm. And plot-wise, what has always helped me is thinking about the idea for so long that I come up with the climax, which usually is your payoff and what everybody listens or reads the book for. They're like, it's it's got to deliver, you know, when yeah. you get to that point. And so when I can, I know that I'm onto something when I find what that experience is. And so for narrator, I thought of the climax ahead of time and detailed it and outlined it. And what it did, John, was I had a starting point for where Sean would start off. Mm-hmm. And then there was the whole backstory about when you know he was in the theater in New York City, but we're already past that when the story begins. But you have to come up with all of that to make it believable for why is he a narrator? Why did he ever become a narrator in the first place? And so I had my starting point and then I had my climax. And then the way that I work is that it's like a goal. I have a point A and a point B. And I'm trying to get there. But what that does is it makes it to where I'm open to surprises and it keeps me focused on where I'm going. But it doesn't constrict me to the point to say, well, I've got to hit point A, point B, point C, point D. And then my writing and my enthusiasm and the energy that I bring to the page, uh, it just disappears. And so I am a fan of outlining. I'm also a fan of letting things develop. But in order so that I don't get sidetracked or destroy everything where you where yeah. you write six chapters, the horror stories of a writer saying, I wrote six chapters and then I had to start over again. I, I don't ever want to do that. So that's yeah. how I kind of satisfy both worlds as I go through it. That That's how I structure it. Now for a murder mystery, you know, you've got to know who done it right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. And then to engineer the twists and, you know, the distracting with the right hand, you know, while I'm giving you information with the left throughout the book, that one you have to be more deliberate in your planning because you have to have your list of suspects and they all have to seem credible before you have the big reveal at the end. Yeah. So that one I find I have to do a little bit more by the numbers than in a psychological thriller like Narrator was. I get that. I find that so, so fascinating. And as a, I mean, I don't really, um, you know, I've never sort of tried my hand at writing, especially thrillers or, or whodunits or things like that. And I'm just, but I love as a, as a reader and as a listener, um, I love that content so very much. So I just sort of, it's always on such a pedestal for me, how they, you know, how they, they can plant, you know, writers such as yourself can plant things, um you know during the thing and then it's sort of it's still surprising but then it makes so much sense and that you know all that sort of 
that sort of twist. It's just, it's an absolute delight. One of the things that I enjoyed about Sean Frost is his narration quirks. So with his lip balm and a sip of tea, and I thought that was so great. As I know so many narrators who have a sort of compulsive list of activities to get them into the zone. And it made me wonder whether... Do you have perhaps any staples in your writing routine that you must have or have to do in order to get yourself in that zone? Yes, um, I do. And before I answer that, I would just say about the, you know, rituals and booth rituals that narrators have. Um, I took from a variety of narrators and kind of came up with Sean's process. So it wasn't one narrator that I focused yeah. on and Scott has his own and I've been able to interview him and find out what his are. Um, but for writing, um, you know, before I get to my own, where I even learned about that before I started writing seriously was Michael Crichton and the fact that once he started a novel, he would eat the same thing every single day really? until the book was done. Right. And so I think he got on to turkey and potatoes and gained 25 or 30 pounds <laughs> with one book that he wrote. And so it was interesting. And he all, he always said, too, that, and I mean, psychologists can unpack this, but he would always have a sweatshirt or some article of clothing lying on a chair in his writing room just a piece of clothing lying around and that gave him great comfort i i don't know if it was the sense of you know being in progress of a work or something like that yeah. um so i started to think about those and i didn't really invent mine but i did it did cause me to look and say well wh what do i do <laughs> um and i think a, a couple things come to mind um my research period is always one of my favorites where I get a ton of books. And for a narrator, I list, I think, five or six that were influential on the work at, at the end. And I found that my readers, I've done that for every book, my readers will go and check those books out as well afterwards, yeah. um, just because they find them interesting. But I get my books and I have them all stacked up and I get my stack of legal pads and I listen to my jazz music and I take notes and read voraciously until I've exhausted a subject to the point where I think I know enough about it to weave it in to the fabric of fiction. And you have to take liberties too. So I know when I'm breaking rules um, and putting things in. Um, I also, uh, when I sit down to write, I make sure that I have protected time where I'm totally focused on it. And then there are those days too, um, when even though you might not be inspired, you've still got to get in there and do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's more of a little bit of a mantra, I'd say, rather than a mm -hmm. procedure, but it's just this positive self-talk of you've got to sit down and work on it. And, and that's the biggest thing that some writers have talked to me about who are trying to finish their first book let alone make it in the business mm -hmm. is even to get, you know, to draft two, you have to get draft one done. And that's where you're rewriting and you're layering. And, uh, you know, an author once said, you know, in draft two, that's where you make it seem like you knew what you were doing in draft one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say the research process is probably you know, my quirkiest thing where I have to have things set. And then uh, one more would be, I, I always have a soundtrack for all of my books. 
books. And oh, so nice. music that I listen to um, or that inspired certain parts of it, I make myself a little bit of a soundtrack. And so each book has <laughs> crazy, you know, tunes that you would never put together, but for some reason they worked for me. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'd love to hear the soundtrack to the racer. <laughs> <laughs> if you could, uh, yeah, if you could post that online to it, that'd be fantastic. Are you, um, are you, um, a person who sort of benefits from a kind of strict routine or is it sort of that you have a certain amount that you have to get done per day sort of thing? How, how does that work in your, in your day? So a good rule of thumb is a thousand words a day. And some days it's more, but a thousand words a day on a project, um, I think is essential. Um, and sometimes that takes 45 minutes if you're on a roll. And sometimes it takes seven hours that's the unpredictable part so i think a word count can be a good thing to kind of anchor yourself but absolutely a routine uh they don't get done <laughs> without having some kind of a routine that you sit down and you're focused and you look at it um i put so much work into the crafting of a book before i start that when i do start i go right through I do not go back and look at previous pages and get caught into that trap of revising. Many, a, a, an author, <laughs> have failed because they kept rewriting earlier pages and they never progressed. So in that way, my routine is I'm trying to set myself up into a position where I won't feel that I need to do that because I put in the work ahead of time, you know, for narrator and for Sean Frost, the work with the character, mm -hmm. and then thinking what was possible for the twists along that I could, you know, fool the audience here and and, and make them wonder what's going on. Uh, all of that was mostly ahead of time so that when I started, I went right through and then you've got to let it sit. And then you've got to attack the second draft. And I guess this is a good place to put in where Scott was very um, wonderful to me that he took a look at the first draft and we talked through some places for um, to dramatize things. And remember, you know, my job is to entertain when we broke rules with audiobook narration and some of the things that go on in the business it was to be purposeful about it and to acknowledge that within the fabric of the book so that industry professionals would be, oh, you know, he's taking some license here, but he understands that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that helped out a lot. And then you go back and you rework it some more until the point where you're ready to say, Scott, my friend, do, do your thing. <laughs> Now, a large section, um, a selection of our audience are either already audiobook narrators or, or soon to be starting out on their narrator journey. Um, Scott Brick is, of course, a legend in our industry. Um, and I hope I have this right, but you've worked with Scott six times so far. Is that right? Yes, he yeah. has narrated all of my books. So we've had six wonderful collaborations, which of course I use loosely. Yeah. He doesn't need Landon Beach's help to narrate. <laughs> but our friendship has developed to the point that was very unique for this particular project because mm -hmm. the trust had to be there. I mean, this is his area. This is his turf and something that I have an immense amount of respect for and wanted to make sure that uh, you know, we put out a fun, entertaining project, but also too one that he would feel comfortable with narrating, and for him to know that 
you know, I had done the work ahead of time so that, yeah. and it just, it, it, it made it great because he had a lot of great suggestions and it probably wouldn't have never happened, you know, John on, on book one, but on book six, after having that time together and yeah. to, to be good friends, to say, let's let the best idea win for this particular section. And yeah. I think this would work better. And like you said, the, the rituals, it was almost like special effects for this one because at one point he goes through Sean Frost's rituals and you can hear it in the actual audiobook where he's dabbing the chapstick on and taking a drink of water and doing the clicker uh, yeah. you know, to show what that is, a tally clicker when you make a mistake and see the wavelengths go across. Yeah. Um, I don't think that would have been possible um, before, before then. And so it was definitely... Uh, a, a once in a career kind of collaboration uh, on a particular project like this um, that we were breaking some new ground and, yeah. and really wanted to, to give the listeners a, a, a fun time. Absolutely. Well, I think you succeeded for one, if, <laughs> if that means anything. Thank you. It means a lot. <laughs> as, a, as an author, what does Scott do right in your collaborations? Is there anything that sort of stands out that impressed you that our listeners can perhaps take into account when they work with authors on, on their projects? Is there anything that sort of stands out about, about Scott's collaboration with you, how he works, etc.? Yes, uh, a lot. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, one thing that our partnership has grown into is um, what he's allowed me to do for some of the later books. The, the first three books were very much a traditional kind of agreement of here's the manuscript. We don't know each other, but yeah. he liked my work enough and believed in it, um, which meant the world to me in order to take a chance on me and to narrate it. But it was, here's the manuscript. And the first time I heard it was when he was done recording it, you know, very standard. Yeah. And I think that most authors, that is the relationship that they have with their narrators. And I know that I don't, and I would venture to say they don't either have the kind of respect for what it takes for you and for Scott and other narrators to actually perform this. I mean, I, I read a book out loud just as I was doing my research just to see how it felt. And I was gassed after 10 minutes and I looked at all the mistakes that I had made. And so when we got to our later books, something that I really appreciate uh, about Scott and his preparation is, you know, he looks at the book ahead of time and he does his research into those things. And then what we do is a pre-recording conference where we will talk about characters and the tones and themes of the book. And as you've heard from narrator, I have a ton of pop cultural references in there. And so again, I'm thinking of him as a classically trained, you know, Shakespearean actor. Uh, and he traveled with a company for 10 years and the art of performance and, you know, getting into the room and working into a scene. Mm -hmm. And so our relationship had progressed to the point where uh, he graciously allowed me to send him a few emails that had every single pop cultural reference in the entire book and where they took place. And in many cases, um, the YouTube clip of what I was referencing, just so that it wasn't, you know, hey, Scott, you have to look at this stuff before you present. But I said, when you get to those certain points, it might be nice to go over and click 
listen to it and then work into the scene yeah. and so th that that was something that has you know been interesting and for the murder mystery that we did we talked about you know who done it yeah. <laughs> and why and that helped him because then he's able to you know not draw so much attention to that character but to have that in mind as you're going through yeah. it gives him a little bit more of a menu of options to play with in his performance to you know lead the audience in different directions to make it more dramatic um and there were things that he did for this particular book because of his area of expertise where he you know would listen to something maybe that I sent him and then he would say hey you know that we could do this later on this part and then he would send me a note and say I think that you know, Sean needs to be this close to the microphone for this particular section, yeah. because that's how it is here. It would work better that way. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of being a professional and working together, um, those were some special moments um, yeah. that I think, so I would say for, for young narrators who are getting into the business, Anytime that you can form a friendship or establish some kind of professional rapport with whoever you're working with, you might be able to discover their intent or what they thought of for a character. And yet at the same time, that's where I end and Scott makes it his own. You know, I, yeah. I, I give him those things just so they might inspire him or they might not. And that gives him some leeway, but also it, it takes away from him trying to take time to maybe go and research all that stuff as yeah. well. So sometimes a simple conversation for maybe a 20 or 30 minute zoom can really set, you know, a, a pathway forward that you might not have before. So I've really enjoyed that. I did not see that coming. And, and I would add one thing that I've gained from this. And that has been that it has made me a better writer because when I was originally writing my first book, I never thought of it being narrated. And so I've always been a big fan in my writing of using he said or she said for the dialogue tags because it makes the actual words and dialogue have to do all the work and you will write better dialogue and be stronger. Scott had a great example. He said, we, one time he narrated a book where a character said, I don't believe you. He said, disbelievingly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but what I did realize, John, was how many times I wrote, he said, she said, and Scott did a great job of throwing those away and keeping the voice for, you know, what's in the quotation marks but what it forced me to do was to write my future books in a way so that I honed you know a way a better way to present who was speaking so that I used fewer tags because they do interrupt the listen when you hear he said she said he said she said yeah. 20 times in a row as a listener it does throw you off yeah. so to make it a smoother listening experience. And that's something I never did. So there's almost an edit I go through at the end of my writing is where I'm reading it aloud to myself, my own manuscript and mm. seeing, is that really necessary to put that dialogue tag there? Or have I established the, the point of view character or who is speaking and their specific way that they speak well enough that I don't have to use that there. 
So that's something I never saw coming. Absolutely. That is so interesting. And the way that it came out as well with with that collaboration, it made you think about that's yeah, that's fantastic. You also mentioned there um the uh, the topic of um of mic placements or the placement to you, to to you relative, you know, the narrator relative to the mic. I just wanted to say I loved how that was described uh, throughout the book and then there's you know, I won't I don't want to say too much into it, but how he uses that against um, yeah, I just I just thought that was fantastic. But this I know, um... I've been so scared in these you know interviews of saying, oh my gosh, I'm going to say something and give something away. <laughs> I'm just like, well, yeah, remember when Sean was doing this? <laughs> I found it interesting as well that you used the word um, your love letter to um, storytelling because uh, in one of my notes that I, I made for this interview, I said that this book really felt like a love letter to audiobook production um, in a way because Sean's arc of, of, of having success in more celebrated industries and then coming into really appreciating audiobook production as an art form um, and then I just wondered although we may we've um, sort of touched on this a little bit prior to this but although starting to gain more public attraction I wondered if you found that narrators editors engineers producers directors of audiobooks are often overlooked compared to, you know, maybe filmmakers or, or musicians. Have you, did you find that, especially as delving into the research period of that? A hundred percent overlooked, undervalued, and most people don't see it as an art and science and acting and performing and the passion that everyone in the industry from, like you said, the engineers and the people that master it mm -hmm. and the performers and getting it right <clears throat> and feeling that you are producing a piece of art because it's, you know, my former profession of teaching, you know, a loose parallel would be because everyone went through school on some level they all think they know what a teacher is and what a teacher goes through. And I think because all people have read something in their lifetime, hopefully a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whether it be fiction or nonfiction, or they were read to when they were young, everyone has an opinion about that, that, oh, well, that's that's easy. And, and again, I, I rely on Sean and Johnny Heller and Scott and Pat Fraley and other wonderful teachers that are out there. I mean, Hillary Huber, um, coaches that, you know, if you were to go into a closet and try to read a book for an hour, suddenly you would realize that, no, this is not easy <laughs> at, at, at all. And so I agree with you 100% that it is very overlooked. And that's where my appreciation grew by leaps and bounds, because I was ignorant of that. I mean, there was a certain point of me. And I was spoiled probably with Scott, because he makes it sound, you know, look, so easy. Yeah. And you realize that for paragraphs, or lines, or even words, you know, the diction and, you know, whatever syntax is, you know, within a sentence, the choices that he's making, um, it, it took a few books to really focus on that. Um, after I'd done my research to say, my gosh, you know, that's amazing. Whereas before, <laughs> as just a consumer, you would listen to it and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to another book and it's done. And somebody went in a room and read that. That's pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it isn't at all. So, yes, I, I did find that out. And I, I would hope that maybe in some way this book, because, 
it is my love letter to storytelling, but specifically anyone who's involved in the audiobook process, whatever role they play, to know, you know, from my heart and you know my brain that you are valued. And I hope that people will get that aspect out of it. And you know, the the whole goal there is to not to beat someone over the head with it, like in an agenda, but more of just a love and appreciation. So I I, I said to someone the other day that, you know, if, if you're an author, I've done the work for you by <laughs> researching this book. But maybe if authors would listen to narrator, they might think twice, you know, before saying something not so nice about their narrator after they hear it come out. And yeah. maybe those relationships will start to form and there'll be better partnerships and, and you know, just a more copacetic and yeah. wonderful trusting environment. And And for narrators, I thought that this might be a book where they could say to friends and family members who have said, I mean, I've heard this from my own being an author, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> you know, yeah. They might be able to say, well, you know, check out narrator. Here's a fun and interesting and hopefully yeah. thrilling way to also learn a little bit about what I do and that it isn't as easy as you think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe grow an appreciation because I certainly have uh, just to get to know some narrators throughout this whole process has yeah. been wonderful. I, and I love to to meet people and, you know, to sit here and, and, and talk to you today. You know, we would have never, I would have never known John York <laughs> had, had I not, had I not done this. And, and that's really, I think, essential for any kind of an artist or someone who has a creative endeavor is to connect with others. Yeah. And, and and know that everyone is trying to make it and they're fighting their own battle to do it. And yeah. that there is competition, but there is also, you know, communion as well. And that you find nourishment in talking to another creative soul. Because John, what we do, it's so in isolation for many parts of it. And then the collaboration comes together. I mean, I am jealous sometimes of these wonderful television shows that have writers' rooms where they've got six or eight writers in yeah. there. How wonderful would that be? But as a novelist, you know, it's me and my little coffee cup here <laughs> <laughs> trying to trying to do this. So anytime I found that you can connect and connect with someone. And, and that's why, I mean, Scott is so busy with his schedule. But every time, which has not been many, we get on a Zoom or talk. It is treasured to me just to know um that that relationship exists and we're able to talk about you know things that we get up in the morning for art yeah. and life and feeling uh, all of those things absolutely i couldn't agree more i think and as i think uh, you know narrating audiobooks and writing are perhaps similar in that way that they're both very solitary pursuits and you spend a lot of time alone and a lot of time thinking and just with the words on the page and as gorgeous as that can be um occasionally um, it, it can be very sort of lonesome and, and you can um, I think you can easily kind of forget why you're doing it, um, you know, occasionally. And and I think I mean, for myself, this is why the, this podcast has been so great is because I get to meet lovely people like yourself. And, and, and we chat about this. And we chat about art and our and our passions and it, and it rejuvenates that that, you know, that flame. And, and uh, I think that's uh, great. Um, one of the things I was going to mention as well, we uh, mentioned one of the gorgeous things about this book was. As as a narrator myself, it was it shone a light, a perfect light on everything that we did, but in such a, a you know dramatic, interesting, exciting, terrifying in places way. 
and it, yeah, it was just that perfect blend of, oh, this is really cool. They're talking about all the things that I do. I think that I, I go through those steps and then dragging you straight back into the story. It was such a brilliant thing. I do, uh, if, if you are a narrator or a fan of, um, you know, the audiobook production, I, I couldn't, could not um, recommend it enough for that, uh, for that reason. Um, but there's a lot of dark themes explored in this book a a, a true psychological thriller for both the characters and us as the audience um addiction jealousy etc do you find it hard to stay in that dark space when writing yeah sometimes i have to take some breaks um but i'm paraphrasing here but you know the, the legend Kurt Vonnegut said, you know, that you have a character that you come up with that you love so much, and then you do horrible things to them for <laughs> on end to, to put them through the paces. Yeah. Um, and what I wanted to have happen to Sean, you know, it's really easy to make those obstacles not mean anything and just mm-hmm. be for effect. And where it's like, oh, I'm going to make a bunch of horrible things. It doesn't ring true. So you know, writing about those kind of issues, you're putting someone through the paces, but like, I'll go back to what you said a minute ago, that when you're in a lonely space like this, uh, of, of writing or narrating or creating anything, um, it, it is extremely difficult. And we live on our own heads during that time. And it isn't healthy for a long, long time. We need connection. You know, we are social animals by nature, but at the same time, I always thought it would be interesting because again, the challenge of an audiobook narrator, and I'll mention some things that influenced me, which of course were Vertigo by Hitchcock and Play Misty for me and Misery by Stephen King. And the last one was A Beautiful Mind. You know, those films inspired me to think about what could happen to an entertainer but I was stuck for so many years because all of that's been done before and then when I started working with Scott that's when I thought you know I don't think anyone has ever done an audiobook narrator as a main character in the framework of a psychological thriller and that's really what told me yes I could make that idea work because I can have things happening to him in the physical space of the booth because it's in his mind. And that's why it almost had to be first person. So yes, those dark places and those obstacles, but when you make it through those things, you know, you come out stronger and and better and and more um, enlightened about yourself and, you know, hopefully not too much worse for wear, but uh, (laughs) you know, I, I've always said, you know, he, in some cases, he is a hot mess, <laughs> but he has a huge heart and he's a fighter. And yeah. I have not met anyone in the entertainment industry, especially with writing and audiobook narration, who was not a fighter, someone who would battle, who would not give up, and who cared about what they were doing so much that they were willing to put in the time and to put up with you know, a lot of meanness, yeah. <laughs> you know, poor reviews, people saying horrible things uh, about something that you care a lot about and have given so much for, um, you know, you do have to have thick skin, but I find that when you connect with others, like we're connecting today, that 
it does give you strength. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm shaking here, ready to go to work when this, when this call ends because of the enthusiasm, but yes, the, the challenges that we put Sean through, um, yes, you have to take a break from them because at some point you think, my gosh, you know, you, because you care and love about that character so much. I start where I'm like, is this going to be okay here? (laughs) (laughs) I'm really interested about the notion that what we consume affects our output in creative endeavors so i've spoken i've spoken with authors who who won't read a certain genre or perhaps nothing at all while while writing and there are those who do the exact opposite are you ever sort of conscious of what you're reading or watching or listening to throughout the you know writing for example when i studied film in college immediately i thought i was going to ruin films for the rest of my life because you're finding out what takes place here in this shot, in this scene, and this close-up, in this special effect, and you know ADR and everything that goes into it? And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to go into a theater and analyze this to death. I won't be able to turn it off. <laughs> but I found that that was really unfounded at the end. That you could learn about something and later detach from it and yeah. still enjoy it as a as a fan. And so I'm very much of the school that, you know, we all borrow from each other anyways, (laughs) that yes, consume everything, read everything, watch everything that you can, movies and screenplays. And so um, I am not someone that says, well, I don't want to read this because I might absolutely not to you know, be honest with you, John, some of my best ideas for my six novels that I put out, and I've got a seventh one coming out a month from now, has come from me reading nonfiction and having something click on page 122 and saying, oh my gosh, I just solved a story problem or I could add another layer to a character in a genre that had nothing to do (laughs) with what I was writing about. Or, you know, the more that you read about a particular genre, the more respect you grow for it. And it informs your writing. It doesn't make you worse. It makes you better. Yeah. And then it also pushes you to think of what could I give the audience that they haven't seen before? And that's another thing that drove a lot of narrator is every page, every paragraph. And I talked later with Scott about this, that, I wanted someone to have such an immersive experience that they had never had before in that genre. And that's what drove me. And, you know, and hopefully it pays off on some, on some level that effort so that someone says, wow, that's a different twist on something. Cause you don't want someone to watch a movie or read a book or listen to a book and say, well, I've seen, I've seen this before and, you know, kind of peace out from it. Mm -hmm. But Yes, I, I, I definitely, I, I think one of the things I think would be neat for an author to do is to say, okay, you're starting a new book and you pick five books and say, you know, this is, read these while you are coming up with your idea in writing and see what happens. Yeah. And I think it would be neat to see what, even if you had two writers who did that, just how drastically different the books would be. Yeah. But that's something that, you know, I've done, I'll pick up a random book sometimes and I'll start reading it while I'm crafting something. 
And an idea will come that I hadn't thought of before to the point where I get a little paranoid where I get to the end of the book and I'm like, well, what books haven't I read? What if I read these three more books? How good could this book have been? And that's where, <laughs> you know, writing is never, you know, done. It's just merely due. Yeah. So there have been times I've thought, my gosh, what, what that book could have been if I would have read three more books. <laughs> but you, you know, you can't, it's not healthy to think that way too much after, but you do as many as you can. That was probably yeah. the biggest takeaway I had from Stephen King's book on writing is oh, at yeah. the end of it. He lists all the books that he read while he was writing on writing, and it was absolutely awe-inspiring. Yeah, um, and that's where I picked up a lot of that is continue reading, continue reading while you're while you're doing this. That is so interesting, especially you mentioned, um, you know, you might be reading like a nonfiction or something, and sort of like halfway through a nonfiction, then something will click that has nothing to do with the material you're reading. And I think that is so fascinating because of the way that our brains work when we're mulling ideas over, and sometimes we just need to sort of keep it active, but on a separate sort of task, you know, and I find that so, uh, yeah, I find it so incredibly interesting. Either reading, you know, nonfiction, if you have writer's block a, a two great cures i always think is pick up a nonfiction book or a fiction book believe me within 20 minutes you'll be back into it or um i think it was eric roth amazing screenwriter said that if you get stuck just change the weather and for some reason changing the weather in a scene it just takes you out of wherever you were cringing and tightening up saying oh my gosh where do i go from here i'm stuck changing the weather or getting your mind completely away from it. Um, you know, and I think it's more, I mean, sometimes taking a walk or run or a bike ride can help, but still your mind can wander about, Oh, I still haven't solved this problem. What am I going to do when I get back in the room? It's almost like you have to engage in something deliberately like reading a book to take yourself completely away. So yeah. I, I do think that you're absolutely right. There is a ton of truth in that. Yeah. I found it interesting. I think it was Aaron Sorkin that I read that he changes outfits like seven or eight times a day when he's stuck to try and, you know, become an, a fresh person, <laughs> become a, you know, start the day again sort of thing. Yeah, I think a yeah. lot of authors are doing that on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> so I just have um, one final question for you, if that's OK. And it is, unfortunately, the dreaded question of what's next? What are you working on right now? What can we look forward to? What can we consume from you in the near future? Right. And so a book that I really wrote on a whim, um, which was a challenge from a friend in the industry, uh, Huron Breeze, which was the first murder mystery that I've ever written. Um, I got a lot of positive feedback from fans and readers that they would love to know more about these characters. And I had originally only planned it as a standalone novel. Uh, and that's what all my novels are up until this point. I've never written a series. And so um, I decided, wow, I, I need to think about that a bit. And then I thought something that I had set up in that book lent itself really well to at least a trilogy where I could have a complete arc for this main character. And so I sat down and started to work on it. And that book, Huron Nights, is in the final stages of editing. And that'll be available right before Christmas on December 22nd. And so 
at some point, Scott and I will be getting together and doing our pre-conference about recording and yeah. some things that we want to have in store for the reader and talk it through, which I can't wait. Uh, and the audiobook uh, will come out uh, sometime after that. And then I'm actually collaborating with Suzanne Elise Freeman on a an origin story for one of the characters that is in the book. And so I've never done a novella before. And so I'm writing that right now. And I'm hoping that some point um, in the spring that'll come out. And then it'll be on to writing the third book in that trilogy. And that'll be called Huron Sunrise. And so that'll be kind of the, a, a murder mystery arc of Huron Breeze, Huron Nights, and Huron Sunrise. And then to finally wrap up the, the Great Lakes saga, because there are five Great Lakes and I've written four of them, uh, each one on a different Great Lake, then I will get to what's called the Bay. And that'll be set on Lake Michigan. And that'll kind of end that saga. So that's what's going on in the immediate future. I've got, I've got a lot to do. <laughs> Gosh, I'm getting overwhelmed thinking about it. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> I was just going to say, my, it sounds like you're incredibly busy. I, did, I didn't want to freak you out by getting you to list everything. To do. It, it's yeah. fun. My, I'm, you know, I'm thinking how I'm going to do it. But then again, I have to think, well, let's just let's get Huron Nights uh, as good as we can possibly get it and then get the novella up and running. So that'll be fun. Well, I fall and can't wait. Um, that just about does it for this episode of the Audiobook Club. All relevant links to social media accounts and, of course, links to Landon's books will be available in the show notes. Landon, thank you very, very much for joining me on the show. It has been such a pleasure to chat with you. Oh, it's been lovely, John. Great to to meet you and, you know, that your work is valued and I wish you well in, in your career uh, as you go forward. And, um, you know, I'll, I hope we stay in touch. Uh, this has been just wonderful. Thank you so much again for listening to the book and then having me on your great show. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, that was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Frustrated by the royalty rates for your audiobook? Annoyed that when the digital distributors say 70% royalties, they actually mean 70% of 50% or 80% of 70% neither of which is an actual 70%. Wishing there was a way to cut out the middleman? Yet, you want your audiobook listeners to have a smooth and positive experience, and a direct download sale from your website won't deliver that. We at Pro Audio Voices hear you. Out of our commitment to our author clients, we've created Amplify, a program that provides an actual 65% of the sales price that you set, that gives you access to your customers' names and emails so you can reconnect with them, and keeps you in the driver's seat. Check it out at ProAudioVoices.com. You'll find Amplify in the marketing menu. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Audiobook Club. This episode was sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, if you have a story you want to bring to life, head over to ProAudioVoices.com to get in touch with industry professionals that can take care of every step of production, as well as offer support and guidance with marketing, growing your brand, and boosting your sales. Once again, that's ProAudioVoices.com. Thanks for listening.